We are uh, at the end now of our journey of this book for the past four months, the uh, Epistle to James, and we're in the last two verses of the book. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, or if you have a text also written there in your bulletin insert today. James chapter 5, 19 and 20. Listen as I read God's Word. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that though these few but very specific words that James gives us this very hour, we may understand them, apply them to ourselves and to our community of faith, our church family, and those whom we love dearly as brothers and sisters together, supporting and encouraging each other as we walk this journey of faith and repentance together. Help us, Father, to understand and know your truth and how to put that truth into a life that is visibly um, able to show your glory to all who see and all who watch. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whether it's law enforcement, possibly, or firefighters, or, of course, the military, whatever branch it might be, they all have a common kind of ethical code amongst themselves, whatever particular form of service. And I'm sure there are others, but those certainly came to my mind. It's a code about protecting one another, about being there for one another, not just supporting one another, but as we've seen time and time again in our own country and in our world, literally putting your life on the line, laying down your life for that one that you're serving with, that one that you're in that particular commission and mission together. The common theme is no man left behind. You've heard it before, no man left behind. I was just reminded as I was looking at it this week, the tomb of the unknown soldier has had someone guarding it since 1930, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's a commitment. But they do so because of the privilege and the honor, the opportunity for those whom have fallen, those who have gone even before them. This morning, James and these Two brief verses challenges us to think about what it means to be our brother's keeper. What does that actually mean, to be our brother's keeper? When we're in the church, when we're in the body of Christ, a community together, is it really our responsibility to be our brother's, our sister's keeper? And I think James specifically challenges this, I think, error of thinking, many of us thinking, well, 
as we go along in our life, as our culture kind of challenges us or pushes us to do, living our more individualistic lives, James retreads, as it were, our thinking. He recalibrates our focus to see how vital it is that we are understanding what it means to be our own brother's keeper. The questions I have before us is first, who is wandering as James speaks about a specific issue there in the church? And then the second question is, who is rescuing after we find out who's wandering? And then lastly, we're going to look at just a few principles of what it means to be, I think, a brother's keeper. So first, who is wandering? In verse 19, James is speaking and says, brothers, If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, then remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James, again, uses this term, my brothers. He's used it over and over throughout the whole book. We've seen it again and again addressing his brothers, his sisters, the family of believers. And he can only be speaking here of either one of two types of people when he addresses brothers. Either he's speaking to Christian brothers and sisters in the church who are struggling and he knows of and has seen and experienced those who are wandering away from the fold, from the community of faith and going in a way that is dangerous for their own spiritual condition, their own spiritual life. And he speaks and is trying to address those particular situations Or, as he says in verse 19, if one of you should wonder, professing believers among those in the church, but may not be true believers. In other words, as he says, when you turn a sinner from the error of his way in verse 20, you will save him from death. It might be that he's considering that there are those among you who profess to be believers, but wander away because they truly were not of the family of God. And yet, I would probably lean towards addressing, as James does, believers who are wandering spiritually in this situation. Um, I believe James is truly challenging those in the body of Christ to consider our own spiritual struggles of losing our way at times of wandering afar away from nearness of where God calls us to his own side. And I believe James is addressing believers who are struggling with wandering themselves spiritually. And this tells us that spiritual wandering can happen to anyone. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. We can wander spiritually, sometimes just a slow meandering off to the side, and then sometimes it's a direct reverse running away from the presence of God in our life. We all at different points in different ways struggle with wandering spiritually. And if we're honest, maybe right now some of us here are struggling in a, in a very, very significant way away from what God has for us. We're doing anything but wanting to truly submit our hearts to Him and follow, yield ourselves, our will to what He is calling us to. 
Not just to himself, but maybe to that which he has called us to follow specifically. Wandering is something that affects everyone in the body of Christ. Nobody in the family of God is immune to possibly wandering away at some point or points in our journey of faith. No one's immune to it. No one's immune to possibly losing their way on the path of following Christ on the narrow way as he describes it. It is a narrow way. And when a way way is narrow, it doesn't take a lot to step off of it. If it's wide, you can kind of meander left and right, but though it is narrow, we can wander off of the narrow road and not sometimes realize that our trajectory has really become greatly askew. God calls us to consider James' words about everyone can possibly wander. You know, we can wander from God and it not be so obvious even to those around us who know us. You, I could be wandering in my spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus and no one really see it or know it except me. And even sometimes I might not, I might not see to what degree I myself have wandered away from the journey. In the New Testament, the church in Galatia, after the new converts left Judaism, and they stopped trusting in obedience to the law for their justification before the Lord, their hearts began to drift back to trusting into an external compliance with the law of God in order to make themselves acceptable to God again for their spiritual uh, existence to be validated in their own heart, but also as they considered themselves before Almighty God. And though many did not find their actions spiritually rebellious, in fact, it was great compliance with the law of God that they were yielding themselves to. They were obeying the law so carefully they wanted to infuse that very strict adherence to the law as the very means by which they would be accepted before God. And even though this was not an outwardly rebellious, actually it seemed very compliant, the Apostle Paul clearly saw what their hearts were seeking to do. And he addressed it in Galatians 4, verses 8 through 10. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? See, he's challenging the Galatians here to not trust in that which is external for their acceptance to God, for God to accept them. They were wandering from the gospel. They were wandering from the message of grace. They were wandering away by actually trying to obtain obedience to the law with great perfection. That was wandering. It didn't look like rebellion, though it was, you see. You can wander from God. Now, follow this closely. You can wander from God by not wanting to yield to Him and His commands and just going the opposite direction, kind of like a Jonah move. You can do that. We've all done it. 
Or you can also wander from God by actually yielding carefully and submitting yourself to the commands, but trusting in them, your obedience, you see. We all should be yielding God's commands, but when we're trusting, we're depending upon that obedience to make us acceptable before God, that's also a spiritual wandering away from what the core of the gospel says. In either situation, it's wandering. Where are you right now spiritually? Where are you? Are you wandering, whether it be in compliance to the law by trusting in it or by not yielding yourself to God's commands and desires? Where are you? Are you present, possibly in body, but not in spirit whenever you are among the body of believers? Are you present in body, but not in heart and in spirit when you engage in spiritual activities that should hopefully encourage your walk in the Lord? Do you just come to worship or a small group or a Bible study just so others won't look at you as being rebellious because you didn't come to worship? Are you here because you don't want to deal with what is going to be thought or seen or said or about you because you're not here? Or do you really desire to worship God and to be with His people and to long for that community and that opportunity to be in His very presence with the family of God? Where is your heart this very morning? Like the children that ran out for Praise City, does your heart just run to God and want to follow and yield yourself to Him? Whether it be here or any hour of any day to run and to be in His presence to worship Him. In your heart, are you just kind of apathetic or indifferent from where God's presence is in your life? Here's the key, you see. You can be religiously active and very busy, but spiritually dead. You know this, right? You can be religiously busy and very active, but be spiritually numb or absolutely indifferent. And your heart not be warmed by the Spirit itself. Your desires not be moved by God's Word or by His efforts and an, an empowerment by His Holy Spirit in your, in your life. Where are you right now? So, who's wandering? Well, it could be anyone. It could be you. It could be me. Any one of us could fit this category that James is speaking of, of wandering away spiritually. But the question that we must ask is, who's rescuing? Who is rescuing? Verse 19, he says, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back. Interesting. Someone should bring him back. Who is someone? Well, James does not here specifically identify a person, a role, a group, a category in the church when he says someone should bring him back like he had just done in previous verses, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, as he even talked about last week, elders praying over the sick and bringing those to the elders of the church, specifically mentioning a group, a, a type of person within the church. 
He does not do that here. Instead, it seems that James lays the responsibility of those who are wandering from the faith at the feet of everyone. He lays the responsibility at the feet of every believer in the church, every one of us, not the deacons, not the elders, not the pastor, not the program staff, not every believer he seems to be laying this responsibility upon. All of us together, not isolating one particular person or group. He lays it there for all of us to consider and to actually act upon. Understanding James' perspective, you you kind of need to also go back in Scripture. Go all the way back to where? Genesis. What happens in Genesis that gives us perspective on what James is saying in these two verses? Well, a very familiar story, Cain and Abel. Remember? Cain and Abel. Cain became very angry at God for rejecting his offering, but yet accepting and blessing Abel's offering. Genesis 4, we read 8 and 9. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And then he asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? Interesting. Am I my brother's keeper, God? I don't know where he is. Of course, he's lying. His heart is, I'm not responsible for what he chooses, where he wants to go, what he does in his life. That's up to him. How can you hold me accountable for what he chooses, where he chooses to go, and what he chooses to do? Now, understanding where Cain is, of course, in his heart and his disobedience, having just murdered his brother, uh, you got to understand that perspective that Cain is having. But yet, for us, we need to learn a lot from what Cain is asking in the question, am I my brother's keeper? You see, we have to ask the question, is Cain right? Are we our brother's, our sister's keeper? And if we are, then what does that look like? And to what degree are we? If a brother or sister in the body of Christ chooses to act and do something that is clearly against God's desires for their life, are we held responsible by God for their choices? Well, we certainly know that we cannot be held responsible for their choice, and yet God does call us to be responsible and does hold us responsible for our relationship to them and our efforts of being part of that community in being responsible for pursuing them and loving them and guiding and instructing and coming alongside and helping in any way possible in their spiritual wanderings. That is where God does place us. The author of Hebrews joins James as he exhorts all believers in the same way. Hebrews chapter 3, the author writes this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. 
so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Same thought, a little different way he says it. We should be careful with one another, encouraging each other, each other daily so that none of us would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Again, we see any one of us are not immune from the deceitfulness of sin, from the wily ways of the great deceiver, from our own flesh and the power that it is trying to deceive us, from the world and all of its temptations and things it throws at us daily from pulling us away from the truth. All these things are very much part of our daily struggles. Matthew 18, you've read it before. We've spoken, we've learned and and, uh, spent time there before as a church. It instructs every one of us to go to our brother. And even at times, if we need to take another brother or sister and then approach the elders of the church to help and come alongside in that situation. But you know, in Matthew 18, the very last option is to take it to the elders of the church. The first option is to go ourselves. The second option is to take a brother or sister who's hopefully in a relationship there and to be involved. You see, the first line of defense when it comes to being a brother's keeper is us, not going to the elders of the church. It's you. It's me. We must all take responsibility for one another spiritually probably to a degree that we really don't grasp like we should. All of us must take that responsibility to heart and what it means for our relationships. And that's why it's so important to have our spiritual relationships in the body, to pursue each other relationally. When you look across the landscape of who's in this room or Who's not in this room right now? Look across the landscape of the church. You go online now and you look at the pictorial directory or just read the names and look at the faces. You do that this afternoon. Go online now. You can look at it. Look at everyone's face and their names. See how many of them you know or you don't even know. And then ask yourself the question, what am I seeing? As I look at these faces, what am I seeing? Do you see brothers and sisters in the family of God that need you to watch over and help and encourage and support them and to speak truth in, in a gracious way to them? Do you, is that what you see when you see the faces of those people? Or, you just, or do you just see a nice group of church-going people? And if they happen to wander off spiritually you may never really know. Or even if you did come to know it, you really don't think it's any of your business anyway. So that's just what it is. Where are you in your heart about this matter that James is speaking of? You know, the world says, you live your life and I'll live my life. And as long as we don't get in each other's way, I'm fine with you and you can be fine with me. You, you do what you want, I'll do what I want, and everything will be just fine. That's what the world says. And we believe that. We carry that thought right into the body of Christ. We carry that thought, that philosophy, into the church. I don't see that anywhere in here. You live your life, I'll live mine. 
I don't see that anywhere in the Scriptures. It doesn't tell us that anywhere in that way. Surely, Scripture says, if a man doesn't work with his hands, he should not eat. There's certain responsibilities we have individually. There's certain uh, uh, responsibilities that God gives us even in the body of Christ. But he does not ever separate individuals to say, in the body, in the church, you live your life, let everyone else live theirs. Brothers and sisters, live your own lives and just be a federation of Christians running along side by side, but never really truly intersecting with each other in any way. It's just not what the gospel tells us. In fact, the gospel is all about pursuing those who need to be pursued. We were pursued by God. He pursued us when we were dead in sin. He pursued us when we were dead in sin. That's the picture right there. There's nothing greater than that. And when he pursued you and me when we could not do anything in of ourselves, then we were brought to him. He brought us to himself himself, and gave us a heart and gave us understanding and a love for him that we did not have in our own ability. God pursues. That's the heart of what James is trying to get us to see. You know, the world tells us that independence and autonomy is best, but that's not what the church is about. That's not why we are called a family. If a member of your own family wandered off, would you just let them go? Just went somewhere and you had no idea where they went? Or would you give great plea and urging for them not to wander, but to come back. I know a man who had an adult son in his 20s, and that adult son became highly involved in a cult. And, and that cult began to surround this 20-something-year-old young man in his life, in relationships, so quickly and so rigorously that it came within just a few months to where this young man was basically cut off from all relationships he had ever had in his life, including his family, his parents, his siblings, anyone at all, with exception of those within that cult, that group. And in a sense, he actually was taken into hiding from his family. They soon did not know where he was at all. He was gone. They had no contact, and they had no knowledge of where he was in the world. So this father began to organize a search party, and for weeks and weeks began to research and to find out more and more and more until finally he was able to locate where his son actually was. And he took the brothers and himself, and they went, and they located and found his son, and they extracted him from that group, and they brought him home. It was quite an ordeal, but they would not give up because he was their, he was their son. He was their brother. He was part of their family. It was that important. I would hope any of us would do the same, for a member of our family, but 
would we do similarly spiritually for those in this room? James says we're called to help our brother, our sister. James says whoever does this will save him from death. Literally, it reads, will save his soul from death. That's what it literally says. James is giving us the cost. In verse 20, he says, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death. At first glance, James seems to be crediting the brother who saves the wanderer with the credit. You're the one who will save. And that's not what James is trying to say at all. You see, God alone is the one that saves and rescues, even those who are spiritually wandering. In other words, what I'm saying is, We're called to be involved in pursuing those who are struggling spiritually, but we are not responsible if they end up continuing to go their own way. It's just not ultimately up to you, nor is the responsibility ultimately on your shoulders. We're called to obediently follow and submit, but yet God is the one who will Bring a wandering brother or sister back. He's the only one that will save and rescue, not us. Again, that same source that turns a sinner from a wandering way is also that same source, as James says, will cover over a multitude of sins, the source being God alone. Only God can be the one who forgives sins. James similarly agrees with Peter's words when Peter in first. Peter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, it points again to what the gospel is about. We are covered with Christ's righteousness, with His sacrifice. It covers our sin. It deals with our sin and our disobedience. James is pointing us to that amazing good news of the gospel that tells us how perfect Righteousness of Christ covers our unrighteousness and all of our disobedience. How God forgives all of our sin and all of our unrighteousness as multitudes as they are, even when we deserve judgment and the opposite. So, who's the wanderer? Any one of us could be. Who is the rescuer? All of us are called to be involved in the rescuing. But what about being a brother's keeper as far as principle goes? There's three principles I want to look at briefly that I think will help us see what it really takes to be a brother, a sister's keeper in the body of Christ. First of all, spiritual rescue work is very hard work. Spiritual rescue work is hard work. It's probably one of the hardest things you'll ever engage in is spiritually pursuing a wandering brother or sister. If you've never done it, it's hard to understand what I'm saying. But if you've ever pursued someone for spiritual reasons, you know that they are struggling and wandering and they are endangering themselves spiritually, it's very hard work. You know, generally, those who are wandering spiritually are not really desiring to come back while they're wandering, generally. Sometimes God does a great work initially, a powerful work. But oftentimes, 
when we're involved in the spiritually rescue effort of those that are wandering, there's not a strong openness to considering coming back, quickly at least. Spiritual rescue work is very hard work. If you ask any elder in this church that's seeking to practice biblical shepherding, which includes at times even church discipline, he will tell you that it is the hardest work that he has ever or will ever do as a shepherd. There's probably no particular aspect of being an elder in the church that is the least desirable than that aspect of shepherding. But yet it is what God calls us to do. It's so hard. It's so very hard to be involved in spiritual rescue. But the second principle is this. Accountability is necessary for spiritual growth. There is a need for all of us in our spiritual journey, and we all want to be growing spiritually for accountability. You know, for the past 30 years in my own walk with the Lord, I've had and been involved in accountability relationships with other people, particularly with other men, spiritual men that have been my elders, my peers, and even those that are walking and following. I have been involved in accountability in all types of relationships of spiritual accountability. And I am very much convinced that that's absolutely necessary for every Christian, to have relationships of some types in our life where we are placing ourselves in an open position of accountability for others to know our life. You see, we're not supposed to be Lone Rangers. We're not supposed to live in isolation as Christians in the body of Christ. And I know some of you can come here on Sunday morning, and then you can go and leave after worship is over, and you really have no deep connection in this body. There's no one who really knows your life, and probably you really don't want them to. Because what happens when someone is involved in your life is they speak into your life. They share things that maybe are hard to hear and need to be heard. Accountability is absolutely necessary. You know, I have a very strong conviction that because of my sinful nature, and I know your sinful nature, though it's redeemed, we need other believers to give us a perspective about our journey. We need other believers to help gain us that understanding about where we are spiritually and what we need to understand. The best spiritual rescue is the one that never happens. The best one is the one that never had to happen. And not that accountability will absolutely ensure that you will never have to rescue someone spiritually, because that's not the case. But it will certainly help create an environment, and that's important, whereby spiritual health can hopefully be experienced greatly. You know, in our, our culture or our nation right now, right now, we don't really have health care. We have health crisis, if you think about it. Most of our health care and those that are in the health care field, there's not much preventative going on overall. It's more reaction 
to all of the disease and all of the things that our, our uh, nation, our, our, the individuals of our country experience. Most physicians are practicing reactive medicine instead of proactive medicine in our country right now. And the better the preventative care, the greater likelihood for overall health. Well, that's the same true spiritually as it is physically. The better the preventive care spiritually, the more likely there will be for overall health in the life of a believer and in a community of believers together corporately. And so accountability is necessary for spiritual growth. But in that accountability, we must be careful as we look at the third and the final brother's keeper principle, and that's this. We have to be careful to avoid legalism and cheap grace on either side of the continuum. As we seek to hold each other accountable, to pursue one another spiritually, to engage each other, to be in each other's lives deeply and growing towards that, we must be careful that we do not go this direction to an extreme towards legalism in those pursuits or towards experiencing what I would call cheap grace or licentiousness on this end. We must always extend grace to each other and love each other. Using discernment here in the context of our relationships, you and I can't be the spiritual police for each other's lives. That You can't play the Holy Spirit for someone else and try to convince them and convict them of what you think they need to be doing on a daily, regular basis. It just doesn't work. That's why God gave each one of us the Holy Spirit, not to play that role. We can't be spiritual police, but we also can't use grace as an excuse for not desiring to grow towards holiness either. We can't go either direction to put a mask on and to call it, well, I'm under God's grace when actually we're not really willing to look deeply at our own sin and our own struggles and where we are and our need for that grace. You know, I've been in a small group or in a community of Christians that was almost exclusively measuring spiritual growth by how well you kept spiritual disciplines. You've been in part of a group like that before where they measure your spiritual growth by how disciplined you keep certain disciplines. And that will kill spiritual life. It did for me. And that's not what we're called to be about. We cannot be so legalistic in our approach to being a brother's keeper. But I've also been around believers, and even myself at times struggling with this very thing, who feel that since we've been forgiven by Jesus' blood and we are under the grace and mercy and kindness of God, then we don't feel much urgency or need to pursue holiness or sanctification by grace. Just not much urgency for that. God loves me anyway, and He does. But for us to ever say, God loves me anyway, and use it as a shield or a weapon for not being a brother's keeper or not seeing our own sin, that's where we go off the wrong edge. You see, the gospel 
is right in the tension between the two. The heart of Christ, the heart of God, is right between legalism and cheap grace. It's right there in the tension. That's where we must put our heart and our efforts, understanding how we all together must seek to live by a growing life of repentance and faith daily is the only way to stay out of the ditches, either towards legalism or cheap grace as we walk, as we journey along the narrow road. It's the only way. The gospel itself. Jesus is our brother. He says it. He's our brother. This morning, he set a table as our brother and the family to come and to feast, to feast upon his grace. He's our brother's keeper. He watches over us and he pursues us, and we experience Christ, our brother, in a relationship like no other. And because we experience it that way, we now are able to then take that to our family of brothers and sisters here as we come to this table. Would you pray with me?